Good morning, Heartland. How's everyone doing today? I want to especially welcome everyone who's watching online. My family is watching online. They're out of town with other family, and they're tuning in this morning. So if we can all give it up, not just for the Herndon family, but for everyone else who is connecting with us online, we're so glad to have you here. Welcome, everybody. So has there ever been something in your life when you found yourself saying, man, I wish I had seen that coming? Right? Uh, Sure, there is. And usually when we find ourselves saying that, I wish I had seen that coming, it's usually about something hard that came into our life, something that we weren't quite prepared for, right? But if we had at least seen it coming, we could have gotten out of the way. Or if nothing else, we could have at least braced for impact so that whatever damage this thing that came into our life, whatever whatever damage it had done, maybe wasn't quite nearly as much, wouldn't have been as much. So a while back, I uh, was up in North Kansas City and I was at an intersection and the light was red, it turned green. And so I pulled into the intersection and what I didn't see coming was a guy coming through the intersection who also didn't see me coming. He also didn't see that his light had turned and become red. And so he came pummeling into the front side of my car. And that was one of those moments where, wow, if I had seen that coming, I could have minimized the damage a little bit, right? Now, fortunately, that was just a fender bender. We walked away, you know, cars break, it happens, but, but we walked away and um, what I know about life is life has a way of having intersections with things kind of pummeling through them and hitting us on the side or in the front, right? That there are some things in your life that you look back on now that you were hit by, that you look back and you're like, man, I wish I had seen that coming. Maybe there was a layoff that you didn't expect and you think to yourself, I wish I had seen that coming so I could have been prepared for it. Maybe you find yourself or found yourself in a custody battle. And when you first became a parent, you never thought that you would find yourself in a custody battle. Maybe there's a a disability in your life that, that you never anticipated. And now it's something that you're living with every single day that is making your life little or a lot harder. Or if nothing else, for all of us, it's just the the bills or the debt that can accumulate that are just completely kind of wrecking your life and adding stress and anxiety and and you're thinking to yourself, whatever it is, you look back on it and you're thinking, I wish I had seen this coming. So we've been in this series, as Dan said, um, 1 Peter, uh, Finding Home. We've been in 1 Peter, this letter deep in the New Testament, where uh, we started in chapter 1, verse 1. We've been walking through the letter. We're getting to chapter 4 now, and we're getting to a place in this letter where Peter is saying to his readers, he's saying, basically, there's some stuff you're going through. There's hard stuff. There's trials and suffering. And what he basically tells them is, you should have seen this coming, Right? And here's how he says it. He says in 1 Peter 4, 12, if you want to follow along on your phones or if you have your Bibles, I'll read it for us here. He says, dear friends, don't be surprised at the fiery trials you are going through as if something strange were happening to you. Instead, be very glad for these trials make you partners with Christ in his suffering so that you will have the wonderful joy of seeing his glory when it is revealed to you. If you are insulted because you bear the name of Christ, you will be blessed, for the glorious Spirit of God rests upon you. If you suffer, however, it must not be for murder or for stealing, for making trouble, or for prying into other people's affairs, but it is no shame to suffer for being called a Christian. In fact, praise God for the privilege of being called by his name, for the time has come for judgment, and it must begin with God's household. 
And if judgment begins with us, what terrible fate awaits those who have never obeyed God's good news? And also, if the righteous are barely saved, what will happen to godless sinners? So if you are suffering in a manner that pleases God, keep on doing what is right and trust your lives to the God who created you, for he will never fail you. So what's happening here? Peter is writing to a group of people. This is a few decades after Jesus was on earth. And Peter, one of Jesus' followers, is writing to a group of people spread across Turkey. And they're going through some really, really hard stuff. That some of them are facing harassment and, and hostility. Some of them have lost their homes. They've lost their possessions. They've lost their standing in the community. They've lost their, their jobs. They've Lost. Some of them have lost their rights. Some of them have even lost the lives of their loved ones. And so when you're going through a trial of any sort, especially hard stuff like this, there are some things that people can say to you or write to you that, that would be helpful, right? Like if someone were to come to you and you're in the midst of a trial and they were just, just to say, hey, I am so sorry that you are going through this. That, that feels kind and helpful. Or even if someone were to say, hey, what, what can I do? That feels kind and helpful. But what doesn't feel kind and helpful is if someone writes to you a letter or says to you, you know what, you probably should have seen this coming, right? And that's a little bit of what Peter does here in chapter four. He knows that these people are going through some trials and he says, you probably should have seen this coming. Here's how he articulates it. In verse 12, I'll go back through this passage. We're gonna walk through this. He says, don't be surprised at the fiery trials that you are going through. Don't be surprised. Don't be shocked or astonished at the suffering, the hard things that you are in the midst of. In fact, you should have seen it coming. And it makes, it makes us wonder, it made me wonder as I was reading this this week, if Peter's goal in this letter, like we've talked about, is to encourage these followers of Jesus, to encourage these churches in the midst of the struggles and the suffering that they're going through, why does he start this passage like this? Why does he tell them, you should have seen it coming? Here's why. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to tell us. Uh, it's because Peter had a framework for suffering. Peter had an understanding of suffering. And I think the reason why he's writing this is because the people that he's writing to didn't have any sort of framework for suffering. When suffering and hard things showed up in their lives, they didn't know what to do with it. They didn't know where it came from. They didn't know how to live through it. And I think we're no different. I think for most of us, if we're honest, we don't have much of a framework for suffering and hard things in our lives. All we know, the only thing we understand about suffering and hard stuff showing up in our lives is that we want to get through it as fast as we possibly can with as little damage as we possibly can. I mean, is that fair to say, right? That's our framework of suffering. So what Peter's doing here is he's taking a framework that he has of, of what suffering is. He's giving us this lens and he's, he's providing this for his readers. And I think for us too, so that we can know what to do when suffering comes our way. And, and here's how he does this. He says, he's, he does this by telling us that when it comes to trials and suffering, there are some things that we shouldn't be surprised by. Here's the first thing. He says, when it comes to suffering, don't be surprised when trials happen. Now, I really wish that this said if and not when. Don't you? 
Yeah. He says, don't be surprised when trials happen. Because if it said if trials, if, if means there's some possibility that trials won't happen. And that's what I would prefer. But, but Peter says, no, it's not a question of if. It's a, it's a question of when. Don't be surprised when trials happen. Here's how he puts it. If we go back to verse 12, the end of this verse, don't be surprised that the trials you are going through as if something strange were happening to you. Because trials are strange. When suffering shows up in our lives, it's strange. It's confusing. We don't know what to make of it. The, the picture I get here is that suffering, it's kind of like a stranger knocking on your door, standing out there on your doorstep. And if you've watched any of the million videos that people have uploaded of their ring doorbells or their video cameras, uh, you know that strange stuff knocks on our door all the time. Now, I'm really resist. I resisted the urge to play a couple of these funny but scary clips also because I don't want to scare us with the kinds of things that can knock on our door uh, when we're least expecting it. But that's what happens with suffering, right? It knocks on our door. And what we don't like is we don't like when strange stuff or strange people knock on our door. What do you do when that happens? You don't answer it, right? You pretend like you're not home. You hope that it moves on to the other house, but, but the, the problem with suffering is it, it has this way of not really caring if you're home or not, of whether you answer the door or not. Suffering doesn't knock on the door. Suffering usually just blows right in through it, doesn't it? And so maybe there's something in your life that has blown into your life that you didn't want to open the door to, but whether you wanted to or not, it came right in. And when that happens, when we find ourselves dealing with hard stuff, the question we always ask is, why? And so Peter tells us, and if we kind of open up to more of the scriptures, we'll see that, that suffering and hard things happen in our lives basically, essentially, for, for one of a few reasons. One reason why suffering and trials happen in our lives, the first one is because it's the results of our actions. Here's how, here's how Peter puts this. See, we do things in our life that incur certain consequences. Peter writes in verse 15, he says, if you suffer, however, it must not be for murder, for stealing, for making trouble, or for prying into other people's affairs. The logic here is, hey, if you're doing something that is harming other people, then you will be inviting trials, maybe even literal trials, into your life. This is not God getting back at you. This is just the logical consequences and results of something that we've done that has hurt other people incurring some consequence in our life. We will, we will be tried for that. We will suffer and face a harder life because of that. Now, we might be able to wrap our minds around that, that we can do things that will, will cause more suffering in our lives. But there's another reason, and, and we don't like this one as much. Peter and the writers of the New Testament would tell us that suffering happens in our lives simply because of the reality of our world. And the reality of our world is that it's a broken world, that this world is not the way that God created it to be. And so, just because of the reality of our world, disease and death happen that relationships turn against us, that pandemics and recessions happen, that injustice and unfair decisions happen. Cars run into us. Whether we did anything to incur this or not, these things happen. Now, we get that there are some trials that come our way because we did something to deserve them, but we don't get and we don't like that trials happen simply because of our broken world, right? Right? 
That feels unfair. But what feels even more unfair, what we like even less, is this third reason why we might suffer in our life. This is the reason why Peter's readers were suffering. And it was because of their relationship with Jesus. And this, this is just, uh, we, don't, we don't get this. For Peter's readers, see, they were making a decision that they were going to make their home. Peter was encouraging. This is why we called this series Finding Home. Make your home in the, person, in the ways of Jesus, not in the ways of this world. Don't make your home in the priorities and the ways of this world. Make it in Jesus. And they were actually doing this, which means that, that their allegiance was to Jesus and not to the, the powers of their world, not to the emperor, not to Rome. And when you are, when you are Rome at this time, they didn't, they weren't, they didn't take that very kindly. They, they had a problem with the followers of Jesus, not, not aligning with them. And so what happened because of that is that these followers of Jesus that Peter is writing to is suffering. That's why he writes in verse 16, he says, but... It is no shame to suffer for being a Christian. Now, if I'm one of Peter's readers, if we're back there and we hear Peter say, hey, it's no shame to suffer for being a Christian, you know, what I would say is, hey, great, thanks, Peter, no shame. You know what? No fun either. In fact, it's not very fair. If I'm one of the followers of Jesus, I'm saying, hey, hang on, let me, let me get this straight, right? If, if, what you're telling me is that being a Christian means I'm acknowledging that Jesus is Lord overall, so he's all-powerful. And if what you're telling me is that Jesus is powerful enough to conquer evil, to conquer death even, and if also what this means here is, is that by following Jesus, I'm believing that he actually loves me as much as he says he does, then why? Why doesn't he keep me from suffering? Especially if the suffering that I'm going through is because of my relationship with him. That doesn't seem to line up. Now, fortunately for those of us who are following Jesus today, I'll say largely for, for most of us, I would say all of us, if we're going through any sort of, of suffering or trials or persecution because of our relationship with Jesus, it's probably not to the level of what Peter's readers were enduring. Now, that still happens in the world today, for sure. It's happened throughout the centuries. And, and we may still, that's not to say that, that you may not suffer criticism or insults or even loneliness because of your relationship with Jesus. You might have people be confused by your faith or by your insistence on not following the ways and the priorities of this world. They may not get that. But whether our suffering is because of our relationship with Jesus or not. What I know is true about me is that if I'm honest, I want my relationship with Jesus to make my life easier. I know it doesn't work that way. I've preached sermons like this one to tell people that's not the case, but I still want it. I'm still disappointed when hard things happen and I'm reminded of it. And maybe, maybe you are too. And so Peter says to these readers, he's essentially saying the very same thing that Jesus told Peter. When, when Jesus looks at the disciples and says, hey, in this world, you will have, you know the word? Trouble. In this world, you will have trouble. And it was conf as confusing for them as it may be for us. And then he says, but take heart, have courage, that means. 
for I have overcome the world. And if he has overcome the world, we say, well, then why is there trouble and suffering? This doesn't seem to line up. And here's why. It can only mean that a life with suffering, with trials, with hard things, will be more valuable and meaningful than a life without suffering is. And that can be hard for us to wrap our mind about. So Peter says, don't be surprised when trials happen. Not if, but when. And what gives our life value through the trials is this next thing. Peter would tell us, don't be surprised by what trials can do. Don't be surprised at what trials can do. Now, uh, Peter calls suffering a trial. That's important. The nature of a trial, and he kind of goes back and forth between suffering and trial if we read these verses. The nature of a trial is that it puts something to the test. And if we, in fact, if we go back just two pages in Scripture, there's another short letter that was written by another leader of the church, follower of Jesus, James, actually the, the stepbrother of Jesus, the half-brother. And he writes, Peter kind of waits until he's in the mid, midsection of his letter to get to the suffering and, 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 and uh, trials part. James, he, he jumps right off the bat. He says, hey, hi, how are you? I'm James, hope you're good. Verse two, consider it pure joys, my brothers and sisters, whenever you face trials of many kinds, because you know that the testing of your faith produces perseverance, that the trials of many kinds, the suffering and hard things we go through are actually, in James' words, a test. A few months ago, I got one of those dreaded things that you get in the mail that you wish you had seen coming. It's called a jury summons right? And I was uh, assigned to show up at the, what is beautiful, Johnson County Courthouse, a new one uh, down here in Olathe, uh, with about 60 other dutiful citizens. And I called the week before hoping I wouldn't have to show up, show up but I, I still did. And I walked in and truthfully, I was not looking forward to this day. I had a look on my face that was shared by the 59 other people who had been called that day. Because we're all thinking to my, ourselves, we don't have time for this. There are other things, priorities, jobs, family is that we would rather be doing. And actually, now that I look back on it, I'm really thankful for what I got to be a part of. I know that our system is imperfect at best, but I think, especially as followers of Jesus, when we have a chance to be a part of it and make it as good as possible, it was a really gratifying experience for me. Um, and so if you get one of those summons, have hope. Um, I uh, was fortunate that I was one of the 12 people selected out of the 60, and I felt like that meant I must have won something. Like, somehow I beat the other 48 people and got to be a part of this experience and get a free lunch out of it. Uh, and so we spent, we spent a day and we listened to testimony. We listened to the person who was on trial. We watched hours of body cam footage. We listened to experts who were coming in. It wasn't nearly as dramatic as it is on TV. It was actually quite boring for most of the day, but we were watching all of this happen. And then we spent an entire other day. And as the jury, we just went away into our, our room and, and we investigated. We investigated everything that had been put forth before us because that's the nature of a trial is that trials of any kind investigate and reveal what is true. What this means is that if you are in a time of suffering, that that suffering is a trial that is set out to reveal what's true about you. And that doesn't feel very kind of God, I'll be honest, I, I know, but Here's, he's not trying to reveal to himself what's true about you. God already knows. 
He knows who our faith is really in. He knows how much faith we actually have. He knows what our real self really is. He doesn't need a trial to prove these things to himself. But in his kindness, he's using these trials to reveal something to us, to help us see what is really true about ourselves. Now, trials reveal what is true. But that's not the only thing that they do. As James tells us, they also, and pay attention to this word, this is the next verse in James' letter. He says, let perseverance finish its work so that you may be mature and complete, not lacking anything. Mature, not just meaning to grow up, to help your faith grow up, but actually to be made whole is the sense of maturity that we read in the New Testament, that you would become whole. Now, I like the idea of becoming mature. I like the idea of God saying, hey, Brad, you know, there's some things that you're lacking in life that I think you would benefit from, and I'm going to give you those things. But let me tell you what I don't like about this verse. It means that the way maturity happens is by persevering through suffering. There's no shortcut to perseverance. There's no easy button or ejection switch when it comes to perseverance. It means that we have to let perseverance do its work. And this is this, what I don't like about this is I can come up with about 50 other less painful and faster ways that I would prefer God use to grow me into maturity. But what this means is that, that I can't read my Bible into the kind of maturity that God has in mind for me, as good as that is. That trials and suffering have a way of producing a different kind of maturity. That, that just reading my Bible or signing up from Bible study after Bible study will do. What this means is I can't serve my way into maturity. I can't attend enough church services or get enough seminary degrees into the kind of maturity that God has in mind for us. And this is why God is willing to allow us to experience suffering. It's because of what it can do. Notice I didn't say will do right? That trials and suffering can produce maturity in us. They can help our faith grow, but that doesn't necessarily mean that they will. That just because you go through a lot of hard stuff, we have to, in the words of Peter, this first word, we have to let perseverance do its work. Who does the work? Not us. We let, we let go of, we just allow, we get out of the way, and we let perseverance work on us. We are just simply a part of the trial, and we let it move forward. You know what this reminds me of? You know, go back, if we go back to Peter's verse, he says, don't be surprised at not just trials, he says the fiery trials that you are going through. And if you've had any experience with fire, here's what you know about fire. It hurts when you touch it. It's hot. It's not a very comfortable thing. Trials throw us into the fire and we have to let the fire do its work. So I learned a new word when I was preparing for this message this week. It's the word metallurgy. This is the art of, of how metals are formed and transformed into something beneficial. And I came across this while I was reading a book by Todd Bolsinger called Tempered Resilience. Todd Bolsinger is a great author. I recommend his books. He's, he writes a lot about leadership, and this is a book on leadership too, because if you are a leader, then what you know is that leadership is actually a form of trial. That leadership is actually a little bit, you're, you're voluntarily stepping into a little bit of suffering. You are in the fire. That leadership is a crucible that God uses to form us in some ways. But whether your fiery trial is leadership or something else that you are in the midst of, what fires do, what trials do is they temper us. 
that blacksmiths, when they take metal, they create these fiery forges that can get upwards of 3,000 degrees Fahrenheit. Because that's the kind of heat that it takes to soften metal in order to be shaped into something useful. So the blacksmith, what they do, if you go over to Deanna Rose, you know, you can watch them do this work. They'll explain it all to you. The blacksmith will take the metal and with care and patience, they will stick it into the fire until it softens to the right temperature. They'll pull it out. They'll hammer it. They'll let it cool. And then they'll reheat it and do this process over and over again because what they're doing is they're adding stress to the metal to make it stronger. Now, not just stronger, but also more flexible. Because if you just try to make something as strong and as firm as possible, then you're just making it more brittle so that it will break when something really hard enough. So there's always something stronger than something else. And so you have to make it stronger and also more flexible. And maybe for us, our faith is strong, but brittle. And God wants to know when something comes our way that we're ready for it. And so what this means is that if you're in a trial right now, God is tempering you. That he's using this uncomfortable process of adding heat to your life and turning it up ever so slowly or maybe all at once, depending on what your trial is, to soften you. To soften me. Maybe it's to, to soften your impatience. Or maybe it's to soften my need to try and be in control of everything. Or to always have to know why something is happening. Maybe what he's shaping for you is your faith. Or he's shaping your character your attitude, and that may not feel very good, but what he's trying to hammer into you is a greater dependence on him. If I've learned anything from some of the trials that I've been in, and as we as pastors have walked alongside trials of other people, God never leads us into anything or allows anything to happen in our lives that can't create in us a greater dependence on, on him. And so what, if he's doing all these things, it can only mean that he is using this trial to prepare us for something. That there is something still down the road in our life and he wants to use this trial to strengthen us. That there's a purpose there. And maybe it's so that, so that down the road there's someone else who's going through their own trial and because you've been through this, you or I am able to walk alongside this other person as they go through their trial with greater compassion, with patience, with wisdom as you help them navigate the heat that they're in the midst of. And so don't be surprised at what trials can do, not, 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 not will do, but can do if we let them. But also, we need a little bit of hope. <laughs> Fires aren't that exciting. Great. Bring your best, God. So Peter gives us hope. Don't be surprised by who is in the trials with you. See, Peter had a framework for suffering. The people he was writing didn't. Peter did. You know why? It's because Peter knew the Old Testament. Peter was Jewish. Peter came from this nation of, of Israelite people who had learned that being in relationship with God didn't mean a life without hard things, a life without suffering. But what they did learn through, through, through time and time again throughout the pages of the Old Testament is that being in relationship with God meant that you had God's presence with you as you went through the trials that you were in. But Peter is writing a group of Gentile Christians. So this is, this, these are people who had no concept of the Old Testament. They weren't Jewish like Peter was before, before coming to belief in Christ. They were just the, the people of the world. And so they didn't have this understanding that Peter did. And so when, when, when they read Peter's letters, this is new and unbelievable to them. They're thinking, wait, you're telling me, 
Let me get this right. You're telling me that by becoming a Christian, I will still suffer? In fact, I might actually suffer more? And so when, when Peter says on this verse, when he says fiery trials, he's actually taking these new Gentile believers back into the pages of the Old Testament, and he's introducing them to some of the stories and the memories of what he's been doing this all throughout this letter to help these people kind of understand the story of what they're being written into. He's taking them back into these memories and introducing them to God's faithfulness with the people of Israel throughout the Old Testament. It's like in Isaiah. This is about 700 years before Jesus came when the Israelites were, were conquered by foreign armies and were taken into exile, that their city was burned down and they're living in foreign lands. They were away from home. And in that time, Isaiah in chapter 43, God says, so when you pass through the waters, I will be with you. And when you pass through the rivers, they will not sweep over you. When you walk through the fire, you will not be burned. The flames will not set you ablaze for I am the Lord, your God the Holy One of Israel, your Savior. This was in the memory bank of Peter. This actually points forward. If we go Isaiah and we go forward several decades, now that the Israelites are in uh, Babylon and they're in exile, there's, uh, Daniel writes about this. And Daniel has three friends named Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. Weird names, great guys, even better story. And so they're, they're serving King Nebuchadnezzar and the king has built a giant statue and he's really upset that these three Jewish guys are unwilling to worship this statue. And they're saying, sorry, we find our ways, we find our home in the ways of God, not in the ways of this world. And, and the king gets really mad and he has this giant furnace and he throws these three guys into the furnace and he's so mad at him that he actually cranks the heat up, Daniel tells us, seven times hotter than usual as a, as a way of killing these defiant Jewish men. And here's how Daniel writes about it. He says, And these three men, firmly tied, fell into the blazing furnace. Then King Nebuchadnezzar leapt to his feet in amazement. And he asked his advisors, Wait, weren't there three men that we tied up and threw into the fire? And they replied, Certainly, your majesty. He said, Well, look, I see four men walking around in the fire, unbound and unharmed. And the fourth looks like a son of God's. What this means is that if we're going through suffering right now, if we're going through trials, as much as we wish we didn't have to go through them, they can actually increase our experience of God with us. Which is why there are some of you who have stories of things happening in your life, hard things, and you never asked for it. You would never ask for it again. You wouldn't wish it upon anyone else. But you wouldn't remove it from the story of your life. Because in that moment, you experience the presence of God in a way that you had never experienced before. And it's given you something, it's added something to your faith to help you as you go into the other trials that come your way. That, that when we look back, we can actually, like the king looking into the fiery furnace and seeing this mysterious fourth presence that looked like a, a son of the gods, we can actually look back in our own life and see God's presence with us too. So don't be surprised at who is in the trial with you. But Peter gives us one more thing. Don't be surprised at what your trials point to. What, what does this mean? If we, if we go to Peter's words, here's how he expresses this. He says, instead, instead, don't be surprised by your trials and suffering. Instead, contrast, be very glad. For these trials make you partners with Christ in his suffering so that, now he's looking forward, you will have the wonderful joy of seeing his glory when it is revealed to all the world. 
Peter's saying that when, when you suffer, when you are in trials, you are actually partnering with, you are sharing in the suffering of Jesus. And so if you want to try and make sense of your suffering, just look to the suffering of Jesus. This is, this is one of the greatest privileges that we have is, as the people of Jesus, that when we suffer, that we can actually look back at a Savior who knows what it's like to suffer. That he can look upon us with compassion and with empathy and say, I get it. He may not be in your exact situation. He may not have gone through what your particular suffering is, but he went through some, some pretty big stuff. And so that's why he can look upon us and he can say, I am with you in this. I understand it. And the way that he was able to endure what was a temporary suffering was because Jesus knew was that there was an eternal victory. There was an eternal reward. And so when we, when we look to Jesus' suffering and, and remember, hey, I'm sharing in this. What I'm sharing in your suffering means that I'm also sharing in your victory, Jesus. That Peter is writing about a day when Jesus does finally completely make everything whole, make everything right, eliminate suffering from the world. And we will experience the victory of that moment. And so our suffering points us to something in the future that can give us hope. As I was reading about this, I came across a small book. You can find it for free online. It's, it's called When God's Children Suffer by a Scottish pastor living in the 1800s named Horatius Bonner. And he writes, truly the sufferings of this present life are not worthy to be compared with the glory that, w- that which is to be revealed. Our affliction is not only light, not only but for a moment, but it worketh for us a far more exceeding and eternal weight of glory. Our sorrows here are but adding to the weight of our eternal crown. In what way, he says, we don't know. We can know that they are adding weight to our crown, but we may not know the specific ways. It is sufficient that we know upon God's authority that such is really the case. And this is the sentence I want us to consider. Need we then grudge or rebel against that which is preparing us for such glad and sure results? Because when we go through suffering, we grudge and rebel in the words of this guy, right? If there's a word that we have for grudging and rebelling, our word for that would would be this, that we resent. That suffering and trials and hard stuff in our life, no matter how often they come, can take us to a place of resentment. You have a loss in your life. And I imagine that as a result of that, you went to a place of some form of resentment. What we do is we resent the suffering that we're in. We resent the world that we live in for being a place where our suffering happens. We resent God for whatever reason letting the suffering come into our life. We maybe even resent people who aren't going through the kind of suffering that we're in the midst of. This is natural. This is what happens. We go to a place of resentment. And the question is, how do we move through this resentment? Because Peter tells us to do something else. And I'm going to be honest, what he gives us to do instead of resentment feels really hard. There couldn't be anything more opposite to resentment than what Peter tells us. And he tells us instead of resenting, he says, Rejoice. Now that feels like a tall order. When you go through hard stuff and you think rejoice, but look, these are Peter's words, not mine. Look how, he, look how he says this back at this verse. You caught this. When he said, instead, be very glad. I don't, this, half of our translations will say, be glad for your suffering. Others will say, rejoice in your suffering. I think the word rejoice here actually gets to more of what Peter's talking about. Because when we think be glad, it's like, hey, <laughs> hooray for suffering. Be happy about it. And that doesn't quite capture it. But, but to rejoice means to be thankful for, to praise God for, to actually 
I think this is something we can only do because of faith. That we can praise God and we can celebrate what the suffering that we're in because we can trust that he's doing something for us. But if resentment is, is, is natural, if it's a natural thing to do, then, then what I've found is that this is also a place that we can get easily stuck. That we let our suffering drag us down, knock us out, and never let us get back up again. And that's what happens when we stay in a place of resentment. And so as we're leaving from this place, what do we do? I'm going to give us two things I want us to take with us, and then we're going to have a little bit of some, just a small amount of space to do, to do one of these things. The first thing that we need when we go through suffering is we need reflection. We need to take time to just reflect on what it is that we're going through. This is just giving space of kind of stepping back and we're taking the trial that we're in the midst of and we're taking this framework that Peter has given us for suffering. We take this lens and we look at what we're going through through this lens that Peter is offering us. That it's not a question of if we're going to go through suffering, it's a question of when. Okay, so uh, when, but what that means is that God might actually be doing something in this. Do I know what that is? Or can I at least trust that maybe that's the case? And what it also means is that I might actually have an experience of God's presence in the midst of this trial, more so than I would had I not gone through this trial at all. And so take time to reflect and say, how does, how does looking at the suffering of Jesus give me hope for something that's to come? That if I'm sharing in his suffering, this is actually a privilege because it means I'm also sharing in the victory and the glory that is to come. That we reflect. To reflect is simply to, to invite God's perspective into ours is what the goal is. There's, a, there's an author, John Dewey, and he writes, we don't learn from experience. We learn from reflecting on experience. <laughs> so don't waste a good trial is what he's saying. Take time and reflect on it and learn from it and hold on to things. Capture them in, in your journal if you have one or on your notes, things that, that you can come back to when you go through that next trial. But what I know is that to reflect well, we can't do it alone. Because when we reflect on our own, when we leave ourself to ourself, when we just hold on to our own thoughts, we can get sidetracked and stuck in some pretty dark places. And so to reflect well, the other thing that we need are relationships. We need people to process our trials and pain with. I came across a study this week of psychologists who had determined, this is what they wrote, that trauma is what happens when people experience suffering alone. So James Pennebreaker, he is the, the, the psychologist, the author who writes about this study of trauma survivors, people who went through some really difficult and horrible trials, all sorts of trials, emotional, physical, sexual, relational trials, people who had been, who'd been through these trials for, for years on end, some shorter. And what they determined, what they saw was that about half of these people, part of them, just never really escaped their suffering. They just hit a tailspin and kept going. They never recovered from it. And the other group of people, they went through their trial and they not only made it through it, but they actually grew through the trial. And these psychologists wanted to know, what's, why is that? So they studied all sorts of factors. They tested you know, as many hypotheses as they could come up with. And here was the conclusion that they found. This is what they wrote. The number one, the number one indicator of people who grew through suffering had family, friends, or a support group to process their pain with. That if we want to survive our suffering and actually grow through it, what it means is that we need other people 
We need people to process our pain with. Maybe what we just need is someone to sit with us in the midst of our pain. Because our physical presence with one another can be a reminder of God's physical presence with us. We need people walking through our trials with us. So what we learn is basically what Peter is telling them, to be the people of God means that we are a people who never suffer alone. And so what I want to do is I just want to give us a moment to do this first thing that we were talking about, reflection. Just give us some space to reflect. We'll just take a couple minutes. And however serves you well to do this, if you want to close your eyes, if you want to look up or look down or just kind of look around and dim the lights a little bit, I just want to give you some space to reflect, to think back to, is there a trial that you are in the midst of right now? Or is there a trial that you've been through and you can still feel, you can still feel the confusion of it? You can still feel the pain and you can see the scars of what that trial is. Or is there a trial that you're afraid might come your way? As you think about whatever it is, we don't always get to know the answers. Sometimes we get to know what the purpose is and this can make the trial easier but we can always know that it has a purpose. You can always know whether we feel like it or not that God is with us in that trial. And so we can trust and know what the psalmist wrote, that though sorrow may last through the night, his joy will come in the morning. And so Lord, I just pray for our friends, our church family today, that anyone that is listening to this right now, I pray especially for those who find themselves in the thick of sorrow, that find themselves trying to navigate the dark, who find themselves in the midst of something that they never could have seen coming. And honestly, even if they wished that they'd had, maybe they wouldn't have been able to escape the pain or the damage that it's done on them. Whether these are things that we invited into our life through things that we've done, Lord, or whether these are things that are just the result of living in a painful and broken world, or maybe even because of our relationship with you. What I pray we could do right now is just to look upon our trial and trust that you're up to something and trust that you're with us. And as much as I wanna pray that you would remove that trial from our lives, friends, as much as I would love to pray that God will remove that trial from you. I don't want to steal a chance from God to use that trial for something for your good or for his glory or maybe even for the good of the people around you. So Lord, but I do invite you to, to make the most of our sorrow and to hasten the joy that you say is on its way. And so now uh, I want to invite us to, to do something. Rejoicing really is a choice that we make. Resentment won't allow us to do that on its own. We have to choose it. And so I invited the band out here just to sing a couple choruses of something we sang earlier in the service as a way that we can choose to rejoice, that we can invite God into this. And to do that, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to nudge. I'm going to say, hey, go ahead and, and stand up. When we worship, we are telling our body and our voice what to do. 
We were giving our heart a chance to express something to God. And so, but here's, here's why I want you to stand up. And here's why I want to ask you to sing as we sing this song. It's because when we sing and when we worship, our voices are actually a, a reminder to one another of one another's presence with us, of even God's presence with us, with the things that we go through. So as, the, as Johnny and Ryan sing this song over us, let's join our voices with them and remember God's presence with us. That's what we get to do every week is remind one another of that. Even when it's hard to believe because of the darkness of what we're in the midst of, that's who we are, church. That the people of God will never suffer trials and suffering alone. Not only because of God, but because of one another.